Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, you know, a founder that uh, is a successfully exited founder. You know, he's uh, definitely one of those founders that has helped, you know, without a doubt to shape the ecosystem, the venture ecosystem in New York, you know, for sure. You know, something that I have seen and, and a ton of respect, you know, for what he's done for his journey. And we're going to be learning quite a bit on, you know, exits, about raising money, about what does it mean, you know, to really build a, a, a business uh, and, and all in between, you know, when it comes to really the journey of building something. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jake Schwartz. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. So originally born in Portland, Oregon. So how was life growing out there? Well, uh, you know, my parents were East Coast refugees and, and they settled and actually outside of Portland in a, on a farm when I was really young. Um, and, you know, my dad was, I would almost think of was an early, uh, early apocalypse junkie and, and wanted to be self-sufficient. And so had, you know, uh, a year supply of gasoline and chickens and sheep and the whole thing, even though, you know, he was, a, he was an ER doctor. So, uh, it was, uh, that was my, you know, my first, first phase of life. And then, you know, we grew up in, uh, in the suburbs of Oregon or Portland was not nearly as cool then as it is now. That's, I will say that. Definitely a lot happening in Portland nowadays. So, uh, so good stuff. Now, now in your case, you know, how do you decide that, um, you know, you want to pack the bags and come over to Yale to study? I don't even really at this stage remember other than I think my parents kind of told me that was the way it was going to be, you know, I, uh, I don't think I got a lot of, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily that I was going to go to Yale or something like that, but, you know, I wasn't going to just look, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and I was going to have to, to meet my potential, I think was sort of the message that was sent. And so I think I, I was, I was a theater kid in, in high school. So um, Yale was attractive to me because of that. And also music. I mean, music for those people that can't uh, see you right now, you know, you have uh, all types of instruments and I'm sure that uh, music, you know, also has uh, has been able to shape your creativity and who you are as an entrepreneur too. No, how do you, how do you think that's the case? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been playing music for as long as I can remember. And, um, you know, that was my first aspiration out of college. I wanted to be a singer, songwriter and a record producer. And, you know, I've had been in, you know, had little groups and bands and, and things like that over the years. Um, this is all sort of a post COVID when we moved up to the woods here, um, you know, post selling general assembly, you know, this was sort of my dream was to have, uh, you know, an office that's really a recording studio. And so this is my sort of collection of instruments and I've got the whole sort of setup. And, you know, during COVID when there was not much going on and before we had my, my, my first uh, son, you know, I had lots of time to be in here and I wrote, you know, tons of music. And, I, you know, I actually think songwriting is such an interesting form because it's, it's both incredibly creative, but also very structured. And I think entrepreneurship is very similar to that in that there is this, um, it's no doubt an art form, 
and you can bring your whole self to it and so many moments of creativity and generation that come out of it but um the more discipline and structure and the chops that you have around it um you know definitely affects the quality of the final output and i think that that sort of that I, I sort of think of those as very similar disciplines that way and i've always sort of been interested in that intersection between uh, you know the left brain and the right brain and creativity and and structure and obviously you had this love for music it sounds like you tested music you tested you know the idea of going to law school too so what do you think you know like pushed you away from those two routes um well music was interesting because I, i i went out not knowing anything about the real world and sort of just thought oh i'm a smart young whippersnapper maybe uh you know i could make, figure out how to make that work and and you know so many people The advice we give young people on how to pursue their careers is so backwards. And I mean, I see some people saying the right things now, so many years later, but, um, you know, this idea of do what you love and follow your dreams. And I think that's true to a certain, like you should be, you need to think about, you know, follow your bliss, so to speak, but you know nothing about how the world actually operates or what you're really good at or what, how you want to spend your days when you're young. And if you focus on the industry, Um, you know, some industries are much more conducive to having a fruitful career and happiness and being able to grow and develop, and some are not. And, you know, the the output of that industry may not be the right way to judge whether or not it's an industry you want to be part of. Um, in many ways, I think the inputs of that industry are much more conducive to that kind of evaluation. And so... Uh, you know, that's like that first realization. I think a lot of people have that. And I mean, I, I love music. I think the other thing I found is the more I tried to like sort of focus my ambition on somehow trying to break into music, the more I found I hated music. And that that's a terrible curse. And so, you know, I think that at that moment, at the time, uh, Napster had just come out. I'm, you know, it was, it was the year 2000. And it was very clear that something terrible was happening to the recording industry and the money And that industry was just being sucked out. And so it, it, even I didn't know very much, but I could tell something was not right and that this was not a place that I was going to be able to thrive. Um, I think it's also possible I just didn't want it bad enough. And I think I think the reality is with those really competitive, creative fields, the game is how bad do you want it? What are you willing to sacrifice? How hard are you willing to work towards an uncertain outcome? And uh, I think I, I was too attached to my ability to succeed, to just go all in on something like that um, at the time. And, uh, and then, you know, then it was like, uh, like everyone. I mean, and this is really, in some ways, what I'm talking about is the origin story of General Assembly here, because all of these experiences, I, I sort of talk about this lost and lonely period. So what do you do when you're like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to supposed to do. And I missed that off-ramp after college, oh, I'll go to law school. That's what everybody was doing at the time. And I feel like I was saved from a terrible fate by not going to law school. And that was just, you know, sort of luck of the draw. September 11th happened. I was in New York. I kind of like hustled my way into some, you know, got interested in finance, which, um, you know, because I didn't understand it. And I think the best thing I had going for me is I was, things I didn't understand, I wanted to like learn more about. And so I just kind of dug in on these things that were foreign to me. And got into my first sort of jobs on the buy side and kind of learned it clearly um, wasn't a great place for me long term. But I learned what I, you know, 
a lot about the world. I learned what I didn't like. And I think I came out of that whole period in the 20s being like, wow, it was really volatile. I knew I was never going to be a good employee. And if that was the, the game I had to play, I was going to lose or at least be very mediocre. And so I knew I had to find a different way, a different path. Um, you know, I had started a couple, you know, little small entrepreneurial ventures, a nonprofit performing arts space. We had a little music stage and a record label there. We had an illegal bar. Um, and then I started a little roving art gallery just because I was curious about that. And then, I mean, eventually I took all that stuff and I said, I got to go back to business school and just like put it all together um, because this is, it just feels a little schizo and all over the place. And um, that led to, you know, that went to business school. And I think I was a little older. I had done a little more stuff in New York and I went around a business school and I was like, what is this? What is going on there? Um, a lot of money, um, not a ton of content and a lot of people who seemed kind of in this weird, you know, midway point in their career and not really sure where they were going. And a lot of people at the time, this is pre-2008, so a lot of people were treating it as just a vacation on their way to easy riches on the other side and, you know, working for private equity or hedge funds or something like that. And when I got out, um, the financial crisis hit and I saw just everybody get crushed. People who thought they were set and were spending into debt in order to go trips around the world for business school. And it was so glamorous and fun. All of a sudden we're unemployed. And um, I had always a little bit more of that paranoia. And so I, I came out okay, but you know, couple of years into my first job after business school, nothing could really happen. You know, everything was frozen because of that financial crisis. And I just had a moment of real truth for myself where I said, um, you know, I don't think like just the way I had come in, I can't be somebody else's employee. There's no easy path for me. I don't care if I have to live, you know, under a bridge, I'm going to be in charge of my own destiny. I'm not going to try to hitch my wagon to somebody else's star. And that was really the beginning of my life in many ways, that moment of fear and jumping off into the unknown. And I started hustling for whatever consulting gigs I could convince somebody to give me in order to pay my rent. And I always left a day of the week for entrepreneurial things. And one of those things was helping uh, a young kid named Matt Brimer, who was just out of Yale, uh, who had this vision for a co-working space very early. And we got together and started jamming on the numbers and, and that kind of stuff. And and how did you guys connect it initially? Uh, it was some like, I think he had hosted like a Yale entrepreneur meetup. You know, he's like this 22 year old kid. He still had Yale business cards, I remember, which is hilarious. And, um, <laughs> and it was just, you know, I was like, wow, if you're going to go in this, I, I know a little bit, I was doing some stuff in commercial real estate. I was like, let me help you like avoid some of these mistakes. You know, I was the ripe old age of 30. So I was like uh, much more knowledgeable. Right. Right. And so, uh, you know, out of that, we ended up recruiting one of his former co-founders, Brad. And, and then we met um, Adam um, along the way, all sort of sharing this idea. And really what was happening is there was this sense of this resurgence of New York as a startup. Up. And, that, and that all became, it was this thing called Superconductor. And then all of a sudden we changed the name um, thanks to our designer uh, from IDEO, Mimi Chun, who was incredible. And the next thing you knew, we were sort of off to the races with this, this concept and it sold out immediately. And we had this big choice. Uh, do we just keep building more spaces 
or do we try to build this into something else? And, you know, it's funny for years that building more spaces, I was like, well, that seems just like the financial crisis. We're just going to take on more and more leases and debt. And then somehow magically it's going to work out. That doesn't make any sense. And we had this room that was a classroom and, and, um, we decided to start running classes there. And, and really that became the origin story of this idea of could we do a better job than business school or law school or college at connecting people to jobs that they would actually um, love and have, have a future. And that was General Assembly. So, so how are you guys saying, what, what ended up being the business model there? How were you guys making money? Um, really, it was we we had these courses. Um, you know, this was this this was what is now known, you know, and is somewhat common is the the coding boot camp, and we had them in for coding, for UX design, for marketing, for um, you know different types of software development, data science, and you know we would have these classrooms. We would do some stuff online, but a lot was still offline, and then we started opening classrooms input spaces around the world. Um, when we sold, we had over 30 different campuses um, in like, you know, on four different continents. So, and also, also you guys raised uh, some money there, no? So how was the, um, oh, the yeah, what, what, so what was the strategy? What was the strategy there to capitalize the business and, and, and get the right people? Um, Calling it strategy, I think, is really giving us way too much credit, right? It was early on. And I think when you're young, the venture capital shows up. And I think we, you know, we we were smart enough to say, should we do this? Should we not do it? But I, I think in retrospect, of course, we were going to do it, you know? And it's just how when, you, when you've never done anything real before in business or it's been all little games, all of a sudden somebody wants to write you a check for four or five million dollars, like... All of a sudden, you can call your parents and say, hey, I have a real thing going on, right? It's too tempting. And um, and maybe it was the, I mean, it worked out for us. So I think from that perspective, we can, we can say, uh, you know, yay. Although I would say it, it made, you know, life really challenging for like 10 years because of it. So, um, you know, and so I think the strategy is we raised a little money. We grew. Then we ran out of money, as one does, and then we needed to raise more money. And so we had to tell a story that would allow us to raise more money. And then we had to grow according to that story so that we could raise even more money. And before you knew it, we had raised over $100 million. And, um, you know, that's the point where it gets pretty challenging. Um, people don't really talk about that, I think, as much as they should. Um, which is that the more, you know, effectively, until you're a public company, the, that those rounds of capital, they call it equity, but it's preferred equity. And preferred equity, the way it works in venture capital, it acts, you know, I would say a lot like debt, meaning there are people who get paid before you get paid. And so you may have a valuation on paper that, you know, allows you to call your parents and make them really proud of you and get headlines and feel like you're doing anything. But, you know, your sort of theoretical net worth isn't real at all. And the real challenge of all of these venture backed businesses is finding a way to convert that this entity that has all this capital in it and a story into somebody writing an actual check for your actual business. Right. 
um, to buy your shares. And that is the only, that is really the only measure of success for most of these things. Um, you know, sometimes they can actually get profitable and throw off cash flow. That's exceedingly rare. I don't think it should be as rare as it is, but it is. And, um, you know, I think a lot, a lot of businesses get stuck in this place where they've raised so much money that it's very, very difficult to ever generate a return for their investors. Um, and if they can't generate a return for their investors, it means their employees get nothing. They often get nothing or very little. And they've put an incredible amount of work and sweat and tears and energy and convince other people to put that work in those, that sweat and tears. And it ends up as a zero um, or a zombie. Or a zombie where it never goes to zero, just kind of sits there, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, on those on those same uh, journeys, is first money in, last money out, and last money in, first money out. So uh, for the people listening, so so obviously in this case, you know, you guys were able to really reach the uh, finish line and be able to yeah. get that nice check that uh, made everyone happy. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. How did the whole conversation with the ADECO group, how did that uh, come about? Well, I had this vision. We had gotten to this stage where I realized, you know, we had, we had been very successful at getting a ton of people who were college graduates, you know, in the United States or, you know, similar type places around the world to pay with their own money to come and learn these skills so they could get better jobs. And we had started to experiment with other financing schemes, right? Whether it's, you know, student loans or income share agreements were very hot at the time, things like that. But the challenge with all of that was that we saw, you know, the, our existing educational system in the United States is all built on taking on huge amounts of debt. And we really wanted to be different than that. And I sort of saw this path where if we kept going, the only way to keep going would be to encourage more and more people to take more and more debt, which sort of seemed like we were being part of the problem then and not part of the solution, which really 
I had a hard time stomaching. And as I looked at the whole sort of system, it became very clear to me that if what we were really trying to do was solve skills gaps where industry needed certain skills but couldn't find people with those skills to fill those slots and was preventing them from growing or expanding the way they wanted to, that employers really would be the logical source of financing for this education. And that you could sort of create a much more a vertically integrated sort of pipeline there. Um, we called it, um, you know, talent pipeline as a service is what we, we were sort of marketing at the end. And as I started to do that with this vision of employers sort of basically placing orders for talent up front, and then us using that those orders to finance the education of these individuals who would then have guaranteed jobs at the other end. It's sort of a, it's a very logical system. There are parts of our vocational training systems that work like this, but if we could pull that off, that would really, that seems like the, the sort of optimal answer to the, the problems that we were seeing at the time. And um, so I had actually been in conversations with ADECO for a while because, you know, there is a, you know, staffing is an industry, staffing and recruiting is an industry where they do get companies to pay for talent. And so I sort of was sort of presenting and always pitching to them this vision of imagine if we could go to your clients and create the talent they need. And you can make more money on a talent placement than you do with a typical staffing or sort of commodified recruiting deal. And you can do a lot of net good for the world. And, um, you know, I think they were really enamored with that vision. And, um, you know, we were a real business in that we had revenue and we had gross margin. We were slightly profitable briefly. Um, but, you know, I would say when, you know, after the acquisition occurred, I think, making that vision a reality within an already existing and pretty mature and I might say rigid system that exists in a multinational public company um, was a lot more challenging than I had anticipated. Um, and I guess they hadn't anticipated, although that's sort of funny because, you know, they should have probably known a little bit more um, about how, how difficult that was going to be. But you know, public companies, they, they need to tell stories. They want to have ideas of themselves. They want to change. It's, it's not easy to be one of those older public companies. Um, and the one thing I will say from that whole experience is I'll probably never overestimate a large, mature public company ever again and what they're capable of doing. Um, because it is very challenging when you get that stage to pivot or adjust or adapt at all. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so, you know, did that. Um, well, that was a nice outcome, though. Four hundred and fifty million. I'm, you know, the thing I'm most proud of is that we delivered a return for all of our investors. Um, our, you know, employees all made money on that. Uh, my co-founders all made money on that. And, um, you know, that getting all the way to the end, delivering on those promises, especially to those early employees who really do so much heavy lifting in these startups. And, and I felt such an obligation to doing my absolute best to get a return for those people who had given so much. Um, and to be able to do that, I, I, I'm very, very proud of that accomplishment.
now in the in in parallel also to this, you know, there was um another company that you helped uh, to you know bring to life, and that's uh, Brave Health. Now, in this case, you know, it sounds like once you were done with the vesting and resting, you now with uh, General Assembly, basically, uh, you decided to uh to jump in it, you know, on the operational side, you know, you know, in this case, you know, as the next chapter for you. So tell us about Brave Health, you know, how were you involved initially? And then at what point do you decide, hey, I think I'm going to jump on this one as my next chapter? Um, That was really about, um, you know, uh, one of my sort of, I would call top executives at GA, right? The, the, those early employees that I think did gave so much. Um, what's so fun about those early stages is you have people who are young and talented. And if you don't give them limitations, they can sometimes surprise everyone in how far they can go. And Anna Windau uh, really joined GA as like our, one of our first two or three employees as an individual contributor. And, you know, within a handful of years was running our entire P&L, which at that point was like almost $80 million. And, um, and so I was like, just, you know, A, I feel an incredible amount of gratitude and loyalty for someone who, who did that and went on that growth curve, which is not easy personally or, or otherwise to do. And I said, you know, your next step is you got to see if you could be a CEO. And I think you would be great. And, um, you know, I noticed that, like, you know, so much of the entrepreneurial journey is is actually operating a growing company. It's not starting something from zero. And yet it always struck me as a little bit um, unfair that, that founders sort of typically are these people who are just crazy enough to start something. But really not all of them can run that thing. And then the people who can run it typically, you know, get a very small fraction of the spoils. And so um, I felt that Anna, you know, would be a great CEO. And I, I'm, and I thought the experience of being a founder is really form was formative for me. And so we started to think about ways that we might be able to do something together. And um, my, uh, my family, my dad and my brother had a couple sort of their, their healthcare people. And so they had a couple clinics um, sort of focused on this Medicaid population. And focused really at the time on on opioid abuse treatment, right? Uh, medically assisted treatment for opioid um, abuse, and um, that was sort of the first model. And it, it pivoted from there. Um, re, you know, we realized Medicaid was the main payer, and so we started talking to them. And we realized that the, the challenges of access for these types of services is way more dispersed than big cities. So bricks and mortar really is should not be the the main main strategy. And that sort of led to this model that has now been going for quite some time, which, you know, Brave is is the largest virtual provider of behavioral health for the Medicaid population. And we are trying to solve some of these really intractable problems. Um, it's hard to sometimes from our perspective, you know, if you're on a normal, you know, commercial health insurance type plan, um, you know, you have access or you have cash that you can sort of use to supplement that. For people on Medicaid, it, it is, um, you know, pretty terrible the the level of access and availability you have for just basic, you know, mental health services. Things like, wow, my doctor thinks I might have some really, you know, chronic PTSD and wants me to see somebody. So I I went, you know, I called around and nobody um, takes Medicaid, or the place that takes Medicaid told me that they might be able to 
see me in three months. Or they told me to come into a waiting room for two days and maybe I could get seen. And so we're trying to use technology and, you know, sort of sophisticated modern operational strategies to put that on its head and make it so that anyone can be seen within, you know, less than a week. And um, we've made incredible headway in Florida um, where we started. And, um, you know, we're in a bunch of other states as well and growing there. Um, we've raised capital from some great partners, uh, Union Square Ventures, Rebecca Caden, um, Josh Cohen at City Light, and Anna Fagan, and Andy Slavitt at Town Hall, who are really Medicaid experts. And so... And it's over 50 million or how much have you guys raised? Uh, you know, I, I would not call this a measure. This is not a, something to brag about, right? We've raised, I think, around 60 million to date. Um, and, you know, we were, I think, lucky to raise just as I would say the window was closing in 2022. And um, at the same time, my co-founder, Anna, who had been doing this for five years and really just I mean, grinding in the desert, right? It's so, it was healthcare is just so brutal, and she was um, ready to um, have her first kid. And so there was this sort of moment of truth where she had to go to maternity leave and was really, really exhausted, understandably, from raising and doing this for so long. And um, and we also realized that there's this very specific moment where all of a sudden our strategy of just raising more and more money to go after this mar big market in this very sort of venture way, that that strategy had to be completely flipped on its head. And I think, um, you know, I felt pretty strongly about that because I had been through this journey before and I kind of knew, you know, one of, I think, the biggest lessons of the first time around is the time to pull the fire alarm and go into emergency mode is not when you're already almost out of money. It's when the money's in the bank. And so that was sort of this moment. We closed the deal. Everything was sort of shifting all around us. And, and um, it sort of was a time where I had, you know, I was sort of in the beautiful place. I had my son had been born. I was hanging out at home, sort of semi-retired, doing whatever I wanted and had to sort of be called back up. To, fill, to slot in here. And, um, but I will say I'm so grateful now for that opportunity because it gave me sort of a chance to synthesize a lot of the lessons that I had um, learned, but not yet sort of processed from my first, you know, 10 years doing this with General Assembly. And so, you know, this was, you know, this is sort of the new era, right? And, and, and I had never had a chance to really be in a business in this moment of like, you know, there is no more money coming. You've got to make this work. Um, you, you know, the idea of that you will sell your business based on a revenue multiple, right, is sort of a form of just founder delusion that will really kill you. And we have to like actually figure out what that path is going to be, which means we have to start making different and difficult decisions right now, right? Yeah. And that, that, you know, about a year ago, that's when that started uh, for me. And it's been a journey for the year, but I've learned just so much about what I already have learned and how to sort of put that together. And I think my, you know, I would say my biggest, the, the part of the journey I'm on right now um, is figuring out how to do this job, which I think I am good at, 
but how to do this job without it being such an emotional roller coaster that everything else in my life falls away and it's like it's sort of this it's like a miserable kind of slog right that with moments of euphoria and and a lot of moments of terror and and just malaise and like and trying to figure out if there's another way to do it that is a little less um crazy making no and that's the journey that i've been on this time and it's i would say um really rewarding to get to try to work on that and work through some of that stuff and i think it's something a lot of founders struggle with and um it sort of got me from this place where after ga i was like i never i i, I was so exhausted it was like a ultra marathon i was just like i it was like i was just curled up and i just didn't want to do anything ever again and um now i'm kind of charged up again i'm like oh this there's there are there's ways to do this that can work with a balanced life so talking about um you know being charged up and and finding balance and then also executing here if you guys were to go to sleep tonight now you and the team and and you wake up in a world where the vision of brave health is fully realized what does that world look like um that's a world in which we're in all 50 states or close to it um and where um you know we are probably seeing hundreds of thousands of patients every month and helping them connect to mental health care in a way that helps them live a more, their lives in a more healthy and satisfying way and productive way and um i think even more importantly is that we i think if we do our job right i am hoping that we can sort of show that you know i should back up for a second in in healthcare circles it is sort of a a truism that you can't make any money in medicaid and it is a place where it is not worth it to innovate or even try to do things different because you will just get chewed up by the machine and the big thing that we are trying to do here is prove that that's wrong that the, the world has shifted technology and paradigms have shifted and there is an opportunity to do something special and it's not easy but nothing the secret is nothing really is easy and so this is if it's it's hard but worth it which is if we can get to the other side i think we will have built something special but i think we will also have shown the world that this is an area where innovation is possible and um we all would be beneficiaries of a world where medicaid is more effective and more efficient so now i want to ask you about the um the past you know we're talking about the future here but i want to talk about the past but with a lens of reflection so let's say i was to i was to bring you back in time i put you to a time machine and i bring you back in time maybe you know to those moments where you were still in wharton and eh? like looking around you and looking what was going on and incubating you know like what could be you know uh, an idea that you could bring to life and let's say you had the opportunity of giving a piece of advice to that younger self to that younger jake before launching a business what would that be and why given what you know now unit economics is everything when you're starting a business that's framed in a very way that a wharton kid could understand too but um you know i think that one of the lessons of the last 10 years is there's almost there's no such thing as spending too much time in understanding watching and working on your unit economics when you're building a business. And um that would probably be le- lesson one. Um 
I think lesson two that I would probably, there's a lot. Um, it's hard to be pithy about some of these things. Um, probably that the things you 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 now think are the markers of success are the are the mere starts of the journey, right? The the money raised, the articles written, the awards received, those are not that those are not actually the game. And if you play that game, you will almost almost guarantee you'll be almost guaranteed to lose. I hear you. I hear you. Very, very profound, Jake. I guess for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I mean, I'm on all the all the channels. I mean, LinkedIn, um, you know, LinkedIn is kind of horrible, right? But everybody's on it. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't hide. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love hearing from people who are on a journey and I like, I like, you know, I will say the one thing that I have found that I, you know, I like about being sort of at this stage, you know, having already exited and working on it and, and having a little more distance is the opportunity that affords me to mentor other people, right? And coach other people, both on my my team at Brave, but also outside and other entrepreneurs. And, and um, it's one of the most satisfying parts of this life that I have now is getting to see other people go on their journey right which starts oftentimes from a very similar place to i was then and you know and getting to help them you know you'll never save that you can't save them from all the little things but um but you can definitely help people feel less alone and um i think that's that's incredibly valuable you you i think you kind of do that too with what you do so i love it well hey jake it has been a true honor. Thank you so much for being with us on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, happy to, happy to be to it. Anytime. All right, thanks. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.